Welcome to Driven to Business with your host, Eddie Mayfield. Driven to Business is a business forum program that focuses on success principles in business. And now, it's time for Driven to Business. Good morning and welcome to this week's edition of Driven to Business. I'm Eddie Mayfield. Glad you're here. You know, we're going to talk today about uh, marketing, one of my favorite uh, topics, actually. And uh, sort of got me thinking this week, I was reading a blog by a blogger that I read quite a bit called Sue Miley. You can actually find her. Just Google Sue Miley and you'll find her. She's been a guest on the program before. She wrote a blog about leveraging what she calls your point of difference. I haven't used that term before, but uh, what she basically talks about is figuring out what is unique about your company and therefore and how you turn that into a, a marketing plan and into a successful business. It's something many of us that have been, had any success in business have learned how to do, and uh, and she does a great job with doing. It. I think I like I tell people often, you need to figure out first of all what business you're in, and you know that that's a uh, that seems pretty obvious. I've told a story before. I was asked to come in and help small business one time and just could not get off the uh, off the ground and they were very unique business very very smart guys in there actually doing uh, doing some uh, 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 very sophisticated calculations for the uh, for the pulp and paper business and and uh, uh, really some of the physics of that were beyond me some of the things they did but they just asked me if I'd come in and give them a chat about they just seemed to have a hard time finding customers and so I sat down with the two guys that were running the business and I asked them, I said, well, tell me what business you're in. And they each talked about 15 minutes each. And at the end of that conversation, I said, I think I know what your problem is. You've both been talking to me 15 minutes, and I have no idea what business you're in. I said, you know, you've got to be able to find that. And it's a big deal to be able to do that. What makes your, what's unique about your business? Well, Sue talks about that, and she calls them the, uh, the, the uh, points of difference. What differentiates you is a point of difference. Shot uses another term that uh, is not a term I use all the time, but it's a term that I do know what it means. It's called points of parity. In other words, what, may, what, is, uh, what about you is not different? What, uh, uh, if you're looking at yourself versus a competitor, are you as good as the competitor is the bottom line on this? You know, you can't, there, there, there's sort of a, uh, um, a, a minimum mission to the playing field of business, and that is competence. You know, you're, 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 you've got to be competent to do it. You can't, you can't overcome incompetence with marketing. That's not going to go very far. Many of us probably have had experiences with companies who we've seen great advertising, and we show up there, and it doesn't quite add up what we were told. And most of us don't go back there again. Well, your customers will do the same thing to you if you over-advertise and oversell. Your ability. So there's a, there's a certain amount of competence you've got to have, and you need to figure out what that is. What is your set of competences, and and get that done. Back when um, uh, when I first started our business, we did a lot of work in circuit board repairs, doing electronic circuit boards for in, for uh, in industrial plants, and, and we were very good at it. I'd gotten to be very very good at doing that. A lot of expertise at it, and it used to annoy the heck out of me when customers would go to somebody else to have that done. And I would try to explain that we're so much better than they are at doing it. But, but you know, here's the bottom line. I wasn't looking at it from their point of view. They would send a circuit board into me and my company, and we would repair it and do a good job and send it out, and it worked fine. Well, they would also send one to our competitor, and uh, they would repair it, send it back, and it worked fine. And I learned from the customer's point of view that there, there, was, no there was no differentiation. I was trying to make a differentiation. It wasn't there. Yeah, we probably were a little better at the technical understanding of that than that comp- competitor was. I'm sure we were, actually. But you know what? It didn't matter. So that's not a real point of difference, is it? If the customer doesn't care about it, 
is not a real point of difference. Well, here's where she goes through a few things. And now it is she starts a few questions you can help figure out what your point of differences is. And one of them is a very simple question. Who buys from you? And uh, it seems simple enough, doesn't it? Who's your target audience? But it requires a little bit of in-depth thought because, you know, uh, the, the, the most illogical answer that somebody will give is, well, everybody, buy, you know, our customers are everybody. Well, that's not true. No, no one's customers are everybody. Everybody doesn't buy from you. Everybody doesn't listen to my radio program. Everybody doesn't do anything to anybody. You've got you to bear that down a bit. And so, you know, you can start off by saying if you're a, you know, if you're a Dollar General, for instance, uh, in, uh, I, I like that company. I own their stock. And, you know, one of the things I do like about them, I've heard their CEO speak a few times, and he, they're very clear on who their customers are. And one of the things he will tell you, their customers are middle-aged women that are in a middle-income class. That, that That's their customers. Well, that tells you right away he knows who his customers are. He knows who <clears throat> he's trying to please when he comes into the store. He knows who he attracts. And you can build a very successful business at doing that. So you need to spend a little uh, bit of time thinking about that. And, and perhaps if you're just starting out and, and you need to attract more customers, you can use your existing customers as a guide. But perhaps you need to go beyond that and say, what kind of customers do I need to reach? Who would benefit from my service and my product? And, and how do I reach? So you spend a little more time. What do they want? What do they buy? What do they like? And then the question number two sounds like the same question, but it's not. Why do they buy from you? That sounds pretty simple, again, doesn't it? Why does? And, and, but the question is not why does anyone buy from you. It's why does your customer buy from you. That might be a different answer than why would anyone buy from you. You got to figure that out. Target out the trait that makes that that, that makes that target customer buy from you. And uh, you know, for instance, uh, is it, is it something like location? Uh, I'm not in a location specific business, so this is hard for me to understand. But let's say you've got a really nice service station. And you're located at a great intersection where it's very accessible to the freeway and so forth and so on. And so on. You get a lot of business because of your location. Um, well, then that, that's a great uh, point of difference for you, isn't it? Because you're easier to get in and out of than perhaps your competition is. You can go on and on with, that, with, with uh, figuring that out. But it's, but it's an exercise to go through. Now, here's the other question she asked. It sounds almost exactly like the preceding question, but it's not. Is why does a customer buy from you and not from your competition. In other words, don't just why they buy from you. Why aren't they buying this from your competitor? Well, let's go back to this location deal for a second. Are they buying from you because of your location? Well, if they are, great. Uh, but isolate the things that, that are uh, desired by your target customers that are unique only to you and, uh, and, and put them in the context of the market that you compete in. What's, what's, what do you offer that your competitors do not offer? They take a little thought to figure that out. And if you're not offering something your competitors don't offer, you'd probably better come up with a better uh, a better sales proposal, than that, a better business proposal, value, a better value proposition, if you put it that way, uh, of what can you do, what can you offer that your competitors cannot offer, and uh, and, and 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 get away with that. The other question she asked, and this is a big question too, is the question we talk about in our company all the time. Once you've identified those unique point of differences that make your company stand out and unique from other people, are those differences sustainable? Let's go back to the location thing for a minute. Let's say that is your unique uh, point of difference. That's your main one. You really are just in a fabulous location. You're running a service station. You're easy to get in and out of the freeways. People can jump right in there and get into your place, get in and out quick. What if your competitor opens up next door to you? Uh, What now? Is Is that a sustainable uh, point of difference, it probably is not. If, if somebody can move next to you 
and basically take half your business, then that's not a sustainable point of difference. And I also would point out to you, all of these things is a moving window. Everything in business is a moving window. And, and, and so what is a difference today may not be tomorrow. And particularly in the tech, I'm in the technology world. In the technology world, things change so fast. Keeping a, technolo- a technological edge up for anybody is so hard. Think of people like Apple, people like that. You know, they come out with, with a new gizmo, you know, some new fancy smancy phone or something, or some new uh, uh, software or app for a phone. How long is it before somebody else comes out with something either very similar or maybe it can at least be sold as being a little better? Well, that's that's the world of technology. So, you know, you go these these moving windows are going by you, and in today's world, sometimes you've got to step to that window in a hurry, and you've got to be prepared and feet on the ground and ears to the ground at all times for the change and be prepared to change with the market as it changes. So, in other words, is your point of difference. Once you've come up with these point of differences, are they sustainable? What you're going to find, if they're just not sustainable at all, then perhaps you need to rethink uh, the way you're positioning yourself in the market. But be aware that no matter if whether you they may be sustainable, nothing's sustainable forever because technologies and market changes. And the other question she asked, this is almost an embarrassing question in a way, she says, are those differences real? And, and we have to get very uh, real with ourselves on that. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say that you come up and you say, and, and I've actually been guilty of this, so you know, the the unique difference of our company and our primary value proposition is we offer outstanding customer service. Well, fine. What the heck does that mean? What, what does that mean? You know, when you, you say that and you put it all over your literature and you, you're sounding really good, but, you know, to a, a person, say, just finding you, what does that mean to them? Mainly very much. You know, I can remember a couple of restaurants here a few years ago uh, around that began offering, and I don't remember the name which restaurant it was actually, but they began offering a 15 minute lunch. Now that's pretty good. A lot of restaurants can say we offer really good service and food and da 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 and all that. But these people are advertising. We offer a 15 minute lunch, and if it's not 15 minutes, uh, I think it was free. Again, I forget who did that. But you know that's a pretty good value proposition, isn't it? You, you know, you're out at lunch, you're in a hurry. You drop in, they promise you you're going to have your food on your plate. You're going to have the food at the table. This is from the minute you sit down, you're going to have the food on the table in 15 minutes. Well, pretty good deal. Now, that's also very hard to do, isn't it? Very hard to come up with that. But they did it. Those are unique propositions. We had a, a, a program, that one of the most uh, successful marketing programs we ever did was called a fast track program. And we, we got there by asking some questions like a paradigm question, like what is impossible to do today, but that if we could do it, would uh, make us a leader in our industry. And we came up with the idea of, again, this is back in circuit board repair days, we came up with the idea of a 24-hour turnaround on circuit boards. And that's impossible because you don't always have the parts. You don't always have the uh, expertise. You don't always have the uh, schematics. You don't have a lot of things. So we came up with the idea that doesn't always work. But you know what? We As we began to dig deeper into that question, we found, okay, we can't turn every circuit board around in 24 hours, but there are circuit boards we can turn around in 24 hours. So our value proposition began, began in those specific, if you own these specific circuit boards, we can fast track them and no extra charge to you, turn around 24 hours, get them back to you. And our business really took off from that. And the amazing thing was not just from fast track items, but just the idea that people liked dealing with a company that would make a bold claim like that and stand by it. Because, by the way, we, we would uh, we'd do it for free if we were late with it. So we became 
very adept the idea of, of, of getting that out. So those are your those are your uh, value propositions. Now, once you've established those, once you've established those points of differences, which you've really got to spend a little time working on, and we're going to talk the rest of the day a little bit about some methods of figuring that out. Um, uh, you got to remember it. You got to work on it, and then you're going to have to execute for it. All of which is hard, you know. Coming out with your point of difference, and then remembering to be sure that's that's the main part of your marketing plan. By the way, we're streaming live on biz1190.com. Today's program will be podcast on the eddiemayfield.com and on iTunes. More to come. Back in just a minute. I'm Eddie Mayfield. This is Driven to Business. Welcome back to Driven to Business. I'm Eddie Mayfield. Glad you're here. We're talking today about, uh, as Sue Molly would de- determine, uh, identifying your points of difference. In other words, what makes your company unique? Identify and that, that, that all ties up with by figuring out what makes you unique. Probably is a good way to figure out who you should be marketing to, who your best customers are, where your best chance of success is, and that's what we're about in business, isn't it? It's about finding. Sustaining our businesses, increasing the business we've got with the customers we already have, and figuring out where to get more. It's a Forbes magazine article uh, by Chuck Cohen back uh, uh, last year. And he was talking about steps and how to identify your target market. You know, that's, that's a harder thing than you might think. And again, back to what I said in the first segment, if... Some guys I talk to in business will, because, you know, you look out there at the universe and you think, oh, well, you know, everybody's a prospect for us. And we're, but that's just not true. It's not true. And there's a saying that, you know, in business, generally speaking, smaller is bigger. The, the more you can identify who exactly your target audience is and who is most likely to buy from you, not only who uh, is most likely to want your product, but who can buy your product? You know, there's a big difference sometimes. You can identify people that would really like to use your product and service, but they can't afford it. Well, then that's not much of a prospect for you. You've got to figure that out. But to identify those markets, it becomes a very powerful, and I might add, a much more simple way to sell. It's very frustrating to try and sell to the world, you know, because the universe is pretty big. And, and when you can't identify anything unique you can say to any one group that, that's going to uh, attract them, in fact, you might even offend some people with what you're saying if, you, if you're not careful and then knowing who your audience is and what they do. So, uh, again, Chuck Cohen wrote a, wrote a great article in Forbes magazine about steps to identify your target market. And here's the first step he came up with. He said that you should um, um, sharpen your focus. You know, we start off by talking that Ford and General Motors, for instance, uh, they know that uh, marketing pickup truck, you're going to sell a pickup truck, for instance, and, and you're going to have a lot more audience and interest in that and, and say somewhere like Texas or North or South Dakota or Utah or somewhere like that, then you're going to have trying to sell a pickup truck in, let's say, Manhattan. You know, somebody lives in Manhattan is not as likely to be too interested in buying a big giant uh, <laughs> Ford F-150 or something. Um, whereas a guy in Texas might really, really, really like that idea. So again, it's to figure out who, who's your target. And so if you're going to be selling big pickup trucks, you probably don't, I'm not saying no one in Manhattan buys them, but I'll bet very few do. You probably, that's not probably a great audience. That's probably not a great market for you. So figure that out. And, you, and again, they go back to this, sharpen your focus. Don't look at the whole world. Sharpen the focus. 
prioritize, uh, uh, basically determine, he says to determine what needs your product fulfills, who's most likely to use it. And as you begin to figure that out, you can think about things like age and uh, maybe gender in some ways. Again, back to the guy, that, uh, that the CEO of uh, Dollar General, he realized it. it's not that men don't go in the store, but the majority of people shop in there are women. He's figured that out. So he doesn't bother really trying to make that store all that men-friendly. He keeps it women-friendly because that's who's coming in there. Uh, uh, you, you know, if you're, if, if you're trying to sell to, uh, you know, a, a recent college grad that just got their first job and probably barely making ends meet, they got a lot of college debt, and you're trying to sell them a new uh, Mercedes, you might be having, you might, that might not be the wisest thing in the world to be doing, trying to, uh, to, to do them. You know, guys my age... We hate to shop for clothes. I mean, I, in fact, uh, I'll be perfectly frank about it. My wife buys just about everything I wear. I can't stand to go buy clothes. But one of the trends I, I have read is that millennial men like buying clothes. I don't know why, but apparently they do. So with that in, in mind, you know, if you're if you're going to go around and try to talk a guy into really buying some clothes, then I'm pretty much going to wear whatever my wife brings home. So if you want to sell me clothes, you're going to sell to my wife because that's all I say. I'm going to get them. Uh, you're not going to sell to me. Because I'm not going to look at them. <laughs> but again, if you've got a millennial, you're trying to be, you're you're in the clothing business. You've got a clothing store and you're selling all these, you know, uh, new fashion jeans and so forth. Well, perhaps that's, you're, you're, you don't need to be targeting guys like me. You need to be targeting people who are going to pay attention to that. Well, again, that's focusing and prioritizing in a way to make your business, uh, um, you, you know, if somebody, uh, if you're trying to sell a, a uh, again, a Mercedes to a family that's making $30,000 a year and you're wasting your time advertising on mediums and marketing through mediums that primarily hit that group, you, you, that's not a very effective marketing. You need to figure out that that's not who's going to be buying a Mercedes for you. You need to figure out who that is. What's the income class going to be buying a Mercedes and sell to that group? And, and there's plenty of money to be made selling to the lower income class groups too. Look at, look at Walmart. But just figure it out. Figure out where, where you're um, where you're working. He suggests using a funnel approach. What he talks is, means by that is this: sort of a multi-staged funnel. Here's what he, if I can read a little bit of this, what he says: if your product or service is gender specific, for instance, um, you can immediately narrow the audience. I'll see if only women are going to buy this thing. Well, then okay, forget the men. You don't. They're, they're not going to buy it. Don't worry about it. Uh, and age range is what I was saying earlier. You know, if you're going to be if you're selling um, surfboards, for instance. Some really hot surfboards. Probably guys my age are probably not your audience. You probably need to be going for some younger guys. And then the other part of the funnel you might need is income level. You know, I've got a couple of really good friends that ride Harleys. I don't, but I drive my Corvette while they drive their Harleys. But still, if you look at the average age of people that buy Harleys, it's not who you see on television. It's guys in their 50s and up. And you know why? Because they can afford them. Younger guys often can't afford a Harley. They might like to have one, but they can't afford it. And Harley has figured that out, and and they sort of market to that group. But again, the family again purchasing a Kia is um, probably in a different income bracket than a family purchasing a Lexus. And and again, if you're going to sell to those, that's part of the funnel. Figure out who buys from you, who can afford it. Uh, one of the things our company ran into, to be honest about, it, along these lines, is we used to 
I used to get very excited because I would get all these opportunities in industrial uh, systems out of third world countries, particular countries uh, uh, south of the U.S. border. And I'd get very excited because they, were, they just had enormous opportunities down there for um, uh, industrial systems. What I figured out, though, is they can't afford them. If you can't do all the financing for them, and if you can't uh, do 120-day terms with them, and if you, you're not willing to uh, really take very, very, very low margins and doing that, plus a lot of aggravation because they're below the border, you got to deal with all that stuff. But we found out those opportunities where they look really good. Basically, they couldn't afford to buy the opportunities. So consequently, even though those opportunities look really good, and we spent a lot of time and even a number of trips down there dealing with some people on some large projects down there, we came to find out uh, I, I'm not in a position to finance those, you know, a multi-million dollar project for somebody. And consequently, if you can't finance it, they can't buy it. Is what it comes down to. So that, that takes it out of our market. Again, it's just knowing your market, figuring out who's down there. And, and you know, uh, uh, Cohen comes out with a great term. He says you need to find the uh, sweet spot at the intersection of highly interested and able to buy. You know, it doesn't matter how interested somebody is if, you, if, they can't, if they're not able to buy from you. And if they're able to buy from you and not interested, again, that's not much of a prospect, is it? So it's finding those sweet spots, honing in, figuring out who it is buys from you, that they have the ability to buy from you, and that they want to buy from you, and then adjusting your marketing and your company over toward that target audience. Again, I'm making it sound easier than it is. It's not easy. We spend a lot of time in our company to uh, in, in doing that exact thing. By the way, more to come. You're listening to Driven to Business. Keep in mind, podcast, if you missed part of today's program, on Eddie mayfield.com and on um, iTunes. I'm Eddie Mayfield back in just a minute. Welcome back to Driven to Business. I'm Eddie Mayfield. Glad you're here. We're talking about um, I've been avoiding using the term niche marketing because I overuse that term sometimes, but that's in some ways what we're talking about. It's, It's figuring out what business you're in. Perhaps it's figuring out what business you want to be in. Because, you know, I didn't mention this earlier. Some of us at times will find ourselves in a mature market. You know, the difference in a mature and an expanding market. A mature market is where the only way you get business is to take it from a competitor. There is no other, there's no, uh, un, there's no unattached uh, business out there. It's not growing. An expanding market is a market where, uh, Really, in many ways, you can just sort of hang your shingle out, and because the market is growing so rapidly, it will come find you. There are less and less expanding markets. I think there have been some. You could look back. I think the real estate market at one time was an expanding market. Quite frankly, the business I'm in, the drive business back uh, many years ago, was an expanding market, before. It, but, it, but it, 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 it's still expanding in some segments, and those segments we've been blessed enough to be in. But much of it has matured. And many markets do mature, and they mature over time. And almost all markets at some point mature. And you've got to constantly constantly be looking as to, as to what to do. One of the main things, as we started off, is identifying what makes you unique. What's, what's different about you that's unique in the marketplace? Do a little time. Take a little time to figure that out. And then identify who is your target market for that. And you can start with your existing customers. You know, perhaps you've got a good 
business, but you're just a little concerned about the fact that it's um, it's gotten still. It's happened to me several times. We, we've had a, 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 a growing and a, a, a stable business for a number of years now, a profitable business. But the businesses that I'm doing today is very different in some unique ways than the business the way we did it, you know, uh, 15 years ago. And, and the, the market has changed. Technology has changed. And we've had to adjust <clears throat> to some realities that, honestly, we've, we had trouble adjusting to, like anybody does. But we've been uh, uh, fortunate, to be, at least in my case, to be surrounded by a team of very sharp people and, and make that happen. I was sort of using an article by a guy named um, uh, Chuck Cohen, who wrote in Forbes magazine last year, and he was talking about the idea of using, uh, you know, a, a, to focus on your target, to use sort of a funnel approach to find that. In other words, the funnels he sort of used, and you, you could make up your own things here, uh, how many sieves you might need in that funnel to sort of filter out. You know, you know it could be something like gender. It could also be uh, uh, uh Income level, it might be uh, age, maybe any number of things could be, uh, you know, people in a particular field for you, uh, things of that sort. But figure out, sort of begin to figure, again, in for most of us in business, smaller is bigger. It's easier, and you're going to be much, much more effective, efficient, and I'll add to you, your morale is going to be a lot higher. If you market the smaller the market that you go to, the, the more defined you can make your market, the easier it will be, the less anguish you will have in figuring out how to market to them and also making yourself. Nothing he says is to emphasize the primary value proposition. Um, in other words, what, what value are you bringing? What's, what's the value proposition you're making to the prospect? What, what, uh, to, to your, and, and if it's existing customers, what's your value proposition to them? What do they get out of dealing with you? And not with a competitor. It's pretty interesting sometimes to sit down and figure that out. And you know, one of the ways, the easiest way sometimes to figure that out is to sit down with one of your best customers that you've got a good relationship with and ask them that question. And you know, they may um, give you an answer you don't want to hear. Well, you know, you're just, I just like you and, you know, uh, you're my brother-in-law or something like that. That that may not help that much. I'll think many times about, there's a story about, um, I think it was the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art many, many years ago did a survey. This was, this was back in the 60s, actually. They wanted to, they were trying to, uh, you know, do, do good customer service and have uh, the displays out there that most appealed to people coming in. So they began surveying people coming in, and they were trying to know what to ask. So they just came up with a very simple question because people coming in there didn't really want to talk to a surveyor, so they just came up with one question. They just said, tell us the main reason you came in here today. And they thought, okay, through that, we'll know if we need to be doing more impressionistic art or, you know, whatever we need to have out here. But what they found out was the number one reason people come in the, in the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art was to go to the bathroom. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. But again, you find that out. Sometimes when you begin really talking to customers and you begin really looking at what your value propositions are, you may sometimes get some bad news in that. But that's good, too, isn't it? it wouldn't it be good to have the bad news and know that you need to change and perhaps add more value to whatever you're doing and, and, and change what you're doing a little bit. Uh, again, and the other thing he points out, it sort of goes along with what I just said about that, is to obtain data. At our company many years ago, this was back in the um, uh, early 90s, 
I became a bit alarmed at, at just there seemed to be some we seem to have some lethargic things going on. We seem to be losing too many cust- customers. I, I wasn't getting that many complaints. Uh, we were making money and we were busy. But I don't know, just something in my gut just kept telling me that there's some something rotten under the surface here. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. So we actually uh, began doing a fairly sophisticated survey of our customers. And uh, again, keep in mind, we were, a, we were primarily at that time, we were primarily at that time, uh, an electronic, an industrial electronic repair center where we, people were sending us things to repair. And we would repair them, circuit boards, equipment, things like that, ran industrial machines, and all the country, and all the world, really, in some cases, and we would send them back out. And so we began surveying them, and we asked a number of questions, and we, the survey was fairly reasonably scientific. It had a bunch of what you call clearing questions to get their mind back to their last experience with you. But the, but the question we really cared about was the last one. And what it said was, and you, you have probably done surveys like this, what it said was overall uh, in your, your last experience with um, EMA, were you very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, you know, Somewhat dissatisfied, very dissatisfied. You know, you know, you've, you've taken these, but the way we graded that is the way most people grade these. Anything less than very satisfied, which is we only really had was a sort of a binary thing here. We had satisfied and dissatisfied. Anything less than very satisfied, we threw in the dissatisfied hole because honestly, if someone is somewhat set, uh, satisfied, then by definition they are somewhat dissatisfied. So that's where we did it. And we were rather shocked to find out that only 73% of our customers checked very satisfied. I was kind of alarmed by that. I thought it would be much higher. And what was particularly alarming about it was, uh, I, it, I, just as a techie kind of guy, my immediate thoughts were, oh, gosh, we're not doing a good job repairing these things. But as we began to bore in to that survey and sort of bore into the uh, to the problem, we found that wasn't true. Uh, people generally... Generally, we repaired things for people. We had a very, very, very high success rate on the repairs. We had very, very little returns or things that didn't work when they got back to people. What we found, uh, to our surprise, was that we were kind of falling down on uh, the high-touch items, not the high-tech items so much, but the high-touch items. We were not returning phone calls like we should. People were having to call us to find out where things were. Um they felt like they were being given the runaround when they called, and we would sort of give them vague answers. And we weren't trying to give vague answers. It's just we didn't have a system in place to give good answers. So one of the things we did, and uh, this wasn't all that easy, we spent a lot of money on uh, coming up with a some in-house um, uh, enterprise software to track what we were doing so that people answering the phone could get good, good, give good information. That was the problem. Our people weren't trying to be... Uh, vague in information they were giving customers. They didn't have the information. So, it, it, uh, and consequently, we sounded kind of vague to customers, and they didn't like that. And we put that in place. We also put some very, very strict rules in place about how we deal with customers, how we return phone calls, how we make promises, put some, put some uh, customer service standards in place that we enforce. And over time, as we began to do that, our customer service levels, the measured customer service levels, went up to like, it would always be between 98 and, and 95, 99.5%. You can't get, I don't think you can, we actually had a couple of months where we'd do it, it'd be 100%, but we never advertised that because 
I don't think you could be 100% all the time. But just taking the effort to do that, again, that became one of our value propositions to customers. We began actually using, and actually we used that story. We'd say, look, here's some problems we had, and we fixed them. And, and, you know, that's a good story to help people. People like hearing that, that you're honest about the fact that, you know, we, we were facing some issues with this, and we took the time to fix it. You know, here's the other thing about that. If you're running a business, over time, you never fix anything once. Never. You know, over time, we would still find that number would begin to slide a little bit because it's just human nature, and it's just the nature of things. That, that, you know, they tend to lose energy. They tend to drop a little bit. But the fact that we were committed to it as a, co- a company and committed to it as a company culture, we would pour the energy back into it again and say, okay, what's the problem here? And we would be, go back to all our employees and make sure, hey, look, this is a big, big, big deal here. And and it's the culture here. And it's what we do. And we've, we've had a lot of success in our company that I attribute very much to that. In fact, I actually said, I don't know this for a fact, but I have often said and thought that had we not addressed and dealt with that problem back in the 90s, I don't know that we'd still be in business. Because people, your competitors are doing, if, when you've got a competitor that's out there trying, doing a good job and you're not, or at least in the customer's perception, you're not doing a good job. And that's really all that matters, isn't it? What they think about you. So we had to address that, and we advertise you. We have the highest measured customer satisfaction level in our industry, and we do. And and we try very hard to keep that up. So obtain data. You know, the idea of of keeping up with complaints, counting complaints to see how you're doing is really silly. You know, think of yourself. How often do you really complain? If you go in a restaurant and the food is not good, how many of you, some of you probably do, but most of us probably don't call the people, the manager over and say, hey, this food was crummy. What do you do? You just don't go back. That's what you do. Well, your customer does the same thing. They just don't come back. So it's very important to get data and, and to believe it. And, you know, it's uh, sometimes, particularly those of us that have founded a company and you have, uh, you know, you kind of got built in um, uh, emotion tied into the, your company and you have emotional capital invested in your company and you really don't want to hear anything bad about your company. Well, you know what? You need to grow up. You have to swallow that. And take a, a good look. Uh, we, we talk in our company sometimes about, we about once a year do what we call a rectal exam of our company. I'm not meaning to be gross about it, but we look where nobody wants to look. And we look at things that nobody wants to look at, and we force ourselves to do it. Hey, you're listening to Driven to Business. More to come. I'm Eddie Mayfield. Back in just a minute. Stick around. Welcome back to the final segment of today's Driven to Business. We're talking about... Uh, again, as Sue Miley, as I started over the, the Sue Miley's blog, talked about uh, identifying your clear point of differences with you and other people and leveraging those and sort of springboarding off of that. We spent a fair amount of time talking about identifying a target market. It's very important you do that. I also spent a fair amount of time in the last segment talking about the idea that you need to obtain data. You need to know what your customers think about you. And, uh, you know, if you're small company, you can do this yourself. I read all the time about people that do um, uh, online surveys and things. As all of you know, there's you can there are all sorts of tools you can do. Honestly, we have had very, very little luck with that. I, I'm not, some people seem to do pretty well with it. We're just doing it wrong or whatever. I don't know. But in our company, we have not had much success with that. We've had, we get the most success with telephone. When I have someone 
And this can't be a tech, and it can't be me, and it can't be anybody that ever touched the job that's got any emotion or any um, uh, axe to grind in the job. It's got to be somebody. And really, the less for us, the less technical they are, the better, because they don't even understand necessarily what they're asking. They call up and ask, and we get uh, feedback. Now, fortunately for us, vast majority of our feedback is very positive. Occasionally, occasionally. We get feedback that's not positive, and we want to know where we drop the ball. You know, we've talked here before the, the, in problem solving. The, you know, my immediate thoughts on that are the thing I want to know instantly: is this a one-off? Well, in the first place, is it true? You know, not you know, you have to understand. Not, some customers just complain. You're going to find customers that just complain, and maybe you didn't do anything wrong, and they complained about it. But you, I don't start off with that assumption. We start off the assumption they're correct. But, but, you know, is this a one-off? Did, did we just drop the ball on this and there's no real excuse for it? We just, somebody just made a mistake. Okay, well, that's fine. We just pick it up and move along if that's the deal. But, but I want to know, is it systemic? Is there some hole in the system? Did this thing fall in a hole somewhere? And, and we find that occasionally, even now. We find that where, now, this is systemic. We, this, this, you know, this got to here, here, and to here, and consequently, and nobody ever, it never really picked up on this, and consequently, this fell into a crack because my theory is always if 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 we discover one that fell into a crack, how many fell into a crack we didn't even know about, and you know we we find that out. So those are the things to do. Is if if, if once once you begin to get data back, if you're a small company, I would encourage you to, to begin surveying your customers, figure out what it is that you do, and get somebody to just call if you're your customer in a in a very non-threatening way and just find out. Uh, what they thought about the last their last experience with you. You need to do it in a timely enough fashion that they still remember the last experience with you. I'll give you a few hints about uh, doing that. You need to ask a few questions. You need to ask more than one question. You need to ask a few questions and put their mind back in that time, even if you don't care about it so much. Like, you know, uh, you can start asking questions. Were, were, were you treated? Was the person who answered the phone friendly to you? You know, hopefully the answer to that is yes. But, you know, what you're trying to do is put their mind back at the time they dealt with you last and, and you can think of questions like that. But if you end up with a question somehow worded some way to find out if how satisfied they were in dealing with you, and anything less than very satisfied or wh- whatever term you come up with, uh, mark that as, un- as dissatisfied and then be very brutal with yourself and figure out why. What, what are we doing? What can we prove to do that better? You know, the, the, one of the best ways to increase your business is to have your customers very happy with you because they will tell other people. And you all know what happens when you have customers that are not happy with you. They tell other people, too. And in this day and age of, uh, of Yelp and um, um, TripAdvisor and all this stuff, you know, we, uh, I travel a fair amount, and, and, and we always check out. Um, you know, I go to, uh, to the sites to reserve a hotel, but before I book that hotel, I always pop over to read some reviews about that hotel. Now, you you got to get very, uh, pretty sophisticated reading reviews, you know. You're always going to find one or two bad reviews about what it is, whether it's a restaurant, hotel, uh, you know, <laughs> cruise, you name it. Somebody's going to not liked it. But I want to know what's the, what do the bulk of people say about it. And, but if the bulk of people say, uh, this is not good, I'm going to believe that. And then no matter what that thing's rated on uh, Travelocity or something, I'm not booking, I'm not going to stay there because I don't, I don't, I don't want to set myself up for disappointment. Well, you know what? Your customers are the same way. Consumers now, customers, even as business to business or consumer, are so have access to so much information. I was talking to a car dealer here uh, a few weeks ago, 
who told me that, you know, people come in now, they know exactly what a car ought to cost. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be the sales guys, and, and they had all the information. You know, you go in there, they had, they had the edge and information. They knew things you didn't know. But nowadays, it's entirely possible for a consumer to come walk into a car dealership that knows more about the cost of that vehicle than the sales guy does. And they'll throw it in front of him and say, no, no, I'm paying, this is what I'm paying. The average person pays this for this. This is what I'm paying for it. And, you know, sort of a take it or leave it proposition. So a lot of us in business are facing that now. People have so much access, you know, in our business, for instance. You know, it used to be back before cell phone days when we all just carried, yeah, even before pager days when you had to call in. You know, somebody would call. They would put up with not hearing from you to the next day about a problem. Well, you know, think of yourself. Do you put up with that? Most people that call us now, they want instant information. They, In fact, they're more likely to call one of our tech's cell phones than they are to call our main office if they need a tech. They'll call his cell phone. And even he's in Missouri or something, he may have to transfer the call back. But that's just the way people call us these days. They want instant information. They also want to know somebody's name, which is why they're calling the tech that they had there last. They've got his cell number. They call him. They know who he is. They want to talk to a familiar voice and be treated as if somebody cares about them. Now, again, that all has to do with customer service. But to review just a minute back to this, identifying what makes your um, customer. You know, I heard uh, Andy Stanley say one time that, you know, if you've got the only hot dog stand in town, your hot dogs don't have to be all that good. Most of us do not have the only hot dog stand in town. Most of us have comp- competitors. And we have to identify what makes us unique. Why are people using us instead of our competitor? We've been through this at our company many, many times, and and uh, and and we can and it changes, and we continually work on that to find out why do people want to use us and not our competitor. Uh, and what we have to find, and what we have to be very disciplined about is make sure that uh, whatever that is, that we're consistently doing that, that we don't let the ball drop there. If they if they're using us because of some reason that that's a that's a great value proposition from us. We have to be sure that every time they call us, that value proposition is in front of them. They, they, they got what they called for. They, 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 they got exactly what they're looking for in dealing with us. Again, it has to do with your market. Now, back to, the, to, to identifying your market. The first thing, again, I always caution people to do is focus. I said this, I think, three times already during today's program. But if, if you think your target audience is everybody, uh, you're dead wrong. It's not. And not only are you wrong, it's a frustrating situation to try and market to everybody. It's impossible. Who are you going to market? To? How are you going to reach everybody? What are you going to do? Uh, are you going to get a megaphone and stand on the street corner? And yeah, well, everybody doesn't drive by the street corner. So in the first place, even that's not going to work. What do you do? It gets a lot more fun and a lot more interesting if you can figure out who the target is you're looking for. And the more you refine that and the more you hone that down, as they talked about using the sieve in a funnel to start pulling out, and yeah, it may be possible that, the, that some of the people you're pulling out of the sieve are possible potential customers. And you know what? We do that occasionally, too. We occasionally do business with people that we didn't think were that much of a prospect to us. But you know what? We do a lot more business with people and a lot longer term and a lot more enjoyable business with people that were those prospects. People who, not only, as he said, at the intersection of they have a great deal of interest and they are able to buy from us. That's a lot more fun place to be. Let me remind you, today's program will be podcast on eddiemayfield.com and on iTunes. By the way, go to eddiemayfield.com. You can contact me about the program. We're here every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock right here in Atlanta's Biz 1190. I'm Eddie Mayfield. You've been listening to Driven to Business. See you next week. 
been listening to Driven to Business with your host, Eddie Mayfield. Visit next Saturday at 11 a.m. on Biz 1190 for more Driven to Business. To learn more about Driven to Business, visit eddiemayfield.com or call 770-448-4644. We'll be right back. 